Today's episode of Undesign comes to you from the land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. We acknowledge and pay respects to all elders, past, present, and emerging. Have we started recording? Oh, cool. We're already recording anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky boy. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Undesign. I'm your host, Costa Lucas. Thank you so much for joining me on this mammoth task to untangle the world's wicked problems and redesign new futures. I know firsthand that we all have so much we can bring to these big challenges. So listen in and see where you fit in as we undesign the topic of online gaming and extremism. From neo-Nazis and far-right groups to Islamic State, those seeking to instigate hate and violence for their ideological ends finding new platforms to do so as traditional social media platforms crack down on their content. New platforms like the chat application Discord, live streaming sites like Twitch, online games like Fortnite and gaming platforms like Steam are rife with extremist content and recruiters. Games themselves are not the problem, but socialization inside gaming related spaces reveals real and pressing difficulties. Skewered by this reality is also the fact that gaming has been proven to be a source of resilience for many reaching an all-time high during the pandemic, according to polling agency Nielsen, with 82% of global consumers playing video games and watching video gaming content during lockdowns. So what is the real picture of the video gaming environment and how do we harness the power and the opportunities present for a greater good whilst protecting people against the risks that also exist? Helping us untangle this wicked problem is our latest special guest, Galen Lamphere England. Galen is a senior researcher and innovation leader in violent conflict, humanitarian and digital rights issues, who currently serves as the research and insights director with Love Frankie, a fellow social change strategy agency. Galen advocates human rights and the prevention of violent conflicts through research and the judicious use of cutting edge technology. And he has led research and policy projects for governments, international non-government organizations and the United Nations alike. He's led investigations into programmatic work, into countering violent extremism, humanitarian issues and digital rights in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, the Balkans, East Africa, and across Europe and the US. Galen is also one of the representatives of the newly set up Extremism and Gaming Research Network. This newly established network brings together the strengths and expertise of 11 distinguished counter-extremism organizations to build up the evidence base and develop concrete solutions to counter the exploitation of online gaming environments by violent extremist organizations. Galen and I have a really fun but rich conversation about the relationship between online gaming and the sense of community and belonging that it gives. We also talk in a lot of depth about why gaming communities in particular seem so appealing to terroristic movements. We also discuss how we use online communities to harness digital resiliency and minimize extremism. All right, Galen, welcome to Undesign. It's so lovely to have any excuse to chat to you, really. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Thanks for inviting me into the studio again, Costa. It's great to be back with you. I guess what we're here to talk about today really centers around video games, right? Actually, I should mention, you're speaking to, as of three hours ago, an official owner of a PS5. I managed to find one. So Excellent. Congratulations. I'm pretty <laughs> Do you have any gaming consoles with you where you are? 
just my computer. I have a, I have a it looks very plain, but it's actually a pretty good gaming machine that uh, I travel with. If it does everything it needs to, then that's all that matters. I mean, and again, this is probably the best segue into what we're talking about today, which is this kind of link between video games and extremism, right? And there's a flip side to it too. But let's start really broad. And not to not to actually no, I'm gonna very deliberately have a play on words here, which you'll understand in a second. What would you say is the state of play with video games right now? You know, I think that's an over and overplayed pun, but I'll take it, given that's what we, we titled our last report. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what's the lay of the land? It's interesting, right? It's an area that's getting a lot of attention right now from a lot of, of governments, of NGOs, of gaming companies, and of gamers too, right? As as a gamer and as a researcher of extremism and, and terrorism, it's an area that has really interested me for a while. And over the last year, we've really dug in to see, you know, what do we know? And, and, and basically... The long and the short of it is there's a lot of unanswered questions, but we see that games and gaming-related spaces, things like forums, chat rooms, Discord servers, in-game chats, are being used to some extent by violent extremist organizations. Uh, I mean, gaming is hugely popular now, right? We have 2.8 billion people who are gamers across the world. It's not niche everyone games now and we see the COVID led this huge surge in online gaming it's been a, a source of resilience for people a way to decompress de-stress connect with friends make new friends but those online games are social spaces right they're not just a single player game anymore and with that we've seen use of those in-game chats by extremist groups for, for grooming or to recruit users We've also seen the production of bespoke, customized video games by groups like Hezbollah. We've seen modification of games by other actors. So taking things like Counter-Strike or The Sims and creating far-right or Islamist jihadist versions of those games. And I think it's really important that we, we say up front that games are not the problem. Here, right? The issue is not the fact that games create, you know, violent people or anything like that. It's right. more games and gaming-related spaces are being used both for specific purposes and because some extremists happen like games and they use it as a social space. Right. And then the culture references get used. Like uh, there's pop culture appeal to games and the aesthetics around them. So you've seen ISIS propaganda material that looks like it almost came out of a Call of Duty set, but it's made by ISIS. And then we've seen the gamification aspect used. Yep. Okay. So, you know, and that's coming from everywhere from advertising to marketing work to educational work. They do things like leaderboards, points, ranking systems. But we see that being repurposed by extremist actors who are using those gamified elements to unlock achievements in their manifestos or to max out on their scores for, for how uh, how extreme you can be in your neo-Nazi right. So we've seen some really worrisome developments in that space too. Mm -mm -mm. And has that sort of, um, I mean, as far as you know, given you've had an eye on this sort of social space for, for a while now, is that something that exacerbated 
uh, that or that was in uh, yeah, I guess in, exacerbated or encouraged by COVID and lockdowns. Like, was there a spike in that sort of activity too, or was the rise in that behavior did that rise proportionately to the amount of people that were online because of COVID? Did you see any patterns there about how those two phenomena are related? I mean, to be upfront, we're we're still working on understanding this, right? So, one thing that we're trying to do at the at the UDRN, the Extremism Gaming Research Network, is to unpack that exact question. We know there's been a rise in online content of all forms during COVID. So it's difficult for me to say if there's causation there, right? If there's actually more extremist activity happening and that's drawing on this, or just more people are online. So we've seen a shift in communications where, you know, before you might meet offline, you were part of a social group, or if you're a part of an extremist cell, you might be offline, discuss and try to uh, build camaraderie. But that's how to, to shift online in light of social restrictions, uh, in light of movement restrictions. So there's an element of just, you know, this is adapting to new circumstances. Another piece is that enforcement and moderation by social media platforms um, has, in some cases, been effective. In English, for example. There's been pretty strong English enforcement that's happened um, for Twitter, for Facebook. There's a big gaps in that still, but there that means that some extremist content has been deplatformed and folks look for a new place to host that. So you go to a live streaming site, you go to DLive instead of Facebook, or you go to Telegram, mm. or you go to an in-game chat room. And maybe you set as your meetup spot with people who are already part of the same group. Or maybe you're trying to use that as a platform to reach new audiences. So this kind of descent for me sort of um, on, on DLive, which is a live streaming platform that happens to host some gaming content. Mm. That's a little bit of a fringe platform. I was watching some gaming content there and then realized, wow, this is kind of weird. You start tracking far right conversations emerging out of these gaming videos. And then suddenly you're watching Fox News overlaid with more extreme right radical content that wow. then starts to get monetized because DLive had a, a cryptocurrency built into it. So you could then donate to those causes. Oh. So you then oh have extreme God. right commentators fundraising on this platform that they're no longer talking about gaming, but the number of clicks it takes you to get there is three, right? I should say that after the the January 6th insurrection and the Capitol riots in the states, DLive took down some of these folks, okay. but there's still a lot of extreme content there. And then they look for, for new platforms instead. So, I mean, to answer your question, the shift to making everything online over the last you know, two years during the pandemic period has meant that there's lots of content that is just taking advantage of new volume of people being in online spaces, but there are some new underlying mechanisms inside of that. Things like live streaming, fundraising online, um, and, and particular audio and video chats using Discord, right? Uh, or using video-based chats instead of traditional text forums or things like WhatsApp. Yeah, I see. It kind of takes me back to sort of the old sort of truism and a lot of terrorism kind of research or just 
terrorism sort of knowledge, which is just this idea that terrorism is communicative and has always taken advantage of every technological advancement that we've ever had. So from the printing press to the internet to now more social forms of gaming, it seems pretty par for the course that extremist groups would be able to sort of adapt to and take advantage of some of the new ways that they can proliferate and infiltrate sort of spaces like this. Guess my question there, what is it about gaming communities that you think extremist groups are seizing upon or sensing as fertile ground for them to to apply their sort of their wares? That's a great question. And I think I'm going to be a bit careful on how I frame my answer because sure. gamer communities are, are super diverse, right? You're talking about hundreds or thousands of subgroups of people, right? Mm, mm. Uh so I think when we say gamers or gaming communities, we're talking about a huge, diverse sure. range of folks. We can't right? flatten them. Yep. Yep. I, I do think that recruiters, as well as just folks who want to spread their ideology, are always looking for folks who need meaning in their lives, right? So we see narratives that get pushed. Um, so when you, we were talking about, about this kind of typology that I was alluding to, so if you're creating a, a new video game that's spreading your own ideology, your own narratives in it, you're trying to share a sense of meaning. If you're approaching folks through your chats, you're approaching folks individually who maybe reacted to some racist comments that you're making in a chat, you're like, oh, right, let me seize on that and talk to you more. Ah, I see. I think you're seeing an attempt to draw folks in for a sense of identity, uh, a sense of belonging, and those are powerful things that can be used for good, right? Mm, but mm, absolutely. because yeah. games are strong in creating that sense of shared identity, in-group belonging, you can then manipulate that to other ends. So I think that's the biggest one. Um, another aspect that I think is under-investigated is, is around mental health in online spaces. And I think part of that is like, look, if we're looking at digital resiliency, what can we do to use games to bolster people's resiliency online using those same forms of identity, belonging, the fact that games can also be an educational facilitator. You can learn a lot in a game. We, we ought to be using that to bolster folks' resilience online, or we're not. So the flip side is you can manipulate it and say, I'm going to help give you a sense of belonging here. Then I'm going to help teach you. I'm going to teach you about my ideology. And then you can get people actively engaged in that through the game itself, but then through the social sphere around it. So kind of those three mechanisms, I think, are what make games a bit different um, from just a traditional you know, website or a chat or um, more traditional means of outreach and propaganda. I guess, you know, maybe the question I really want to ask is, are there particular types of games that you've noticed, even if it's just an instinct not trying to commit you to any sort of research findings here yet, but is it correlated with like violent video games, for example, or are we seeing these sorts of conversations happen on benign stuff? Like, I don't know if people play Tetris like socially on streaming platforms, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking something along those lines, a bit more benign. Is there a correlation with like violent video games, which ties into a whole other pre-existing narrative around uh, the impact that violent video games we think has or hasn't, does not have on people. Is there any relationship between the types of games people are playing and where these extremist groups are infiltrating? So as far as we can tell, no. Uh, 
So the research that's been done is, is largely outdated on the links between violent video games and offline action. We don't know really the causative links between what happens online and whether that causes someone to take action offline. There's a lot of existing radicalization research that, that you've read and know quite a lot about, right? Of, of different pathways sure. leading to radicalization of extremism. You can draw some of that. When it comes to the type of games, so you have neo-Nazi groups in Roblox, uh, which is primarily you know kid-centered alternative a game platform. You have far-right groups in Minecraft, which is you know an assembly game. <laughs> I used so, to play that in high school. Yeah, yeah. So 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 the use there is social. It's not about the the content or the narrative. Right, right. You see presence in first-person shooter games as well. But what we see so far is, is actually the gaming type doesn't seem to matter that much. Now, I'll give a caveat there. Sure. We believe it is important to unpack extremist narratives and storylines in games when those exist. Okay. So, yep. Hezbollah makes a first-person shooter. Yeah, we should absolutely look at that as a narrative. But likewise in mainstream games, did you see um, Far Cry 5? I was literally just about to say Far Cry 5 seems to be an example that kind of teeters on the edges of what we're talking about. Right. So, I mean, here's this game, first-person shooter, established um, series of games, and they decide to go with a far-right cult um, and a conspiracy set of conspiracy theorists, which, you know, there's ways that you can handle that and make it uh, a redeeming storyline. But instead, they disempower the user, the gamer, where you get trapped in the cult. You can't escape it. And, you know, spoiler alert, the world ends in a nuclear inferno at the end of this with the cult being right. And you can't do anything wow. about it. Fun. <laughs> yeah, you know, great game. Um... <laughs> oh, I haven't played Far Cry 5 for a while. But uh, I haven't played Far Cry for a while. But holy crap, that's... I mean... There's something to be said about the effect that media has on how we relate to the world, right? And I think the relationship between games and our behavior is a really vexed issue in terms of popular conversation, right? Like there's this association between, and I think, I mean, I think one of the first examples I can remember is Columbine, right? Where the conversation came up around the role of video games in in the trajectory of those perpetrators' uh, decision to to commit mass murder um but do you is your sense really that i mean not to say that there isn't an influence because obviously these are things that are more complex than yes there's an influence or no there's an influence not an influence but my feeling is that the current public conversation around video games and whether it's violence or violent extremism um seems to focus on the wrong part i think that's i think that's really true um, okay from what research has been done there has never been a clear link established between violence in video games and violence offline. And that's been, if anything, largely debunked by the research that's been done. Yeah. Now, the online aspect's different, but again, that's more a question of socialization and socializing. It's less a question of exposure to violent content or violent, violent imagery. Got it. Can that desensitize people to violence in society? At a philosophical level, yes. At a practical level, possibly, though that's not fully understood. 
But desensitizing people to violence is very different than instigating violence. Okay, right? great. great distinction. If we want to live in a more peaceful world, I would hope that we actually sensitize people to violence and its impact, whether that's gendered violence, whether that's terrorism or extremist violence. Sure, I think that's really important. But I think saying that violence in video games or violence in movies or media causes offline violence, I have yet to see anything that shows a clear link there. And I think There's no real bit, compelling case for that, is there? Not really. There's other things that are concerning. Um, if that's the narrative or the, the role that the viewer has placed it, lots there I think that we could unpack. Um, but again, I in, in, in our work, we really want to look at multiplayer games and platforms as communication channels, as social spaces where language is applied. They're financing spaces even. And the behavior of younger gamers is something we ought to understand better. And that link or the correlation between online activity, video games, offline behavior, we need to unpack better. But when it comes just to the games and gamified violence, I'm unconvinced, to be honest. Yeah, sure. I think it's kind of that's... a bit overdone. It's too easy. It's, it's too easy. easy. That was my, my was that's exactly what I was about to say. It just feels a bit too simple, you know. I mean. I think like when we were preparing for this episode with our with our research associate, you know, we were chatting about some of the games we played and play. It's like there's a real, there's like some of the games I like are very problematic and violent, you know, and at no stage do we feel compelled to even transport that into our real life kind of situations or really make a comment about the world based on what is being presented in there. I don't know. I guess is that true for? Do you think that's true for most people? Is that? I mean, is that even something that you can say? Because I would think that most people feel that way. Or is there something there that still kind of makes alarm bells go off, saying like, eh, people that like violent video games are more at risk of these sorts of things, or or not? So again, from the research that's been done previously, so kind of two thousand to two thousand ten, there there's quite a bit of research into um whether that existed or not and all of that debunked it it said there's no established correlation between people who see violence or play violent video games and their support for violence in offline environments and i think you see that now too i mean 2.8 billion gamers across the world of that the ones playing first person shooters still a lot we're talking billions of people the overwhelming majority don't then take that and say, you know, what I what I played online in, in Call of Duty or Fortnite, um, then translates that I should be taking that offline. That's not the case. Um, now, are there stories or narratives or tropes that could be used from those games and get into people's heads? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but again, that that particular link, I don't I don't see. I think there's, there's deeper questions on online behavior and on video games and the ways that we socialize. I think those could be unpacked more. But that violent video game and violence bit, I think, um, still yeah, complex. It, it's something that's been dissected enough that I, I have yet to see any compelling evidence. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, you know, um, again, just reflecting on pop culture influence on violence or terrorism or whatever, you know, or just on 
on constructs of masculinity that then make you more open to some forms of violence if you're that way socialized or maybe even inclined. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to say something a bit silly sounding here, but I kind of blame characters like, if, we, if we're going to ascribe blame to anything, I kind of ascribe blame to characters more like James Bond, for example, or like um, some of those really hyper-masculine archetypes that were, that were designed, I think, originally written as satirical characters or characters that were meant to be very um, self-aware and like very flawed and not particularly likable. Through pop culture have achieved this new status, which I think some young men do interpret or at least see themselves in aspirationally and, you know, in their own weird way can probably transform some of those tropes. I, I mean, that's just a personal kind of observation, just having worked in extremism for, you know, 10 or 11 years and worked with some, just, you know, spent time looking at how people construct their own narratives, whether it's just on comment sections or in manifestos. That sort of that pseudo-commando rogue mentality is such a key characterization. Do you think that's where some of the the easy blame comes from? That if you're playing the role, you're actually practicing enough before you need to not practice anymore, even if the research doesn't necessarily bear that um, that hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, I think when we talk about constructs of masculinity and particularly toxic constructs of masculinity and their depiction in pop culture, I think there's a lot of, of ripe territory there to to question and look into. Mm. Um, links between toxic masculinity, incel culture, and then the progression from incels who also decided to commit violent acts. Right. That's an interesting area. To, to look at. Um, again, to my mind, the question is not then about the depiction of violence in a video game. It's a different research question. You're asking, what are the, the norms and depictions and tropes around masculinity, and how is that performed or evidenced in, in, in a gaming mm -hmm. environment? Uh, which is fascinating. And I think there has been some work on, on masculinity and masculine culture in games. There is a, a deeply misogynistic undercurrent to a lot of male gamer communities, for sure. Um, Which we so kind of saw rear its head with Gamergate, didn't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see some of our, our female colleagues who have been um, doxxed or trolled for, for their work. So, so that does exist. I think, again, I would come back to questions of identity and belonging in that. Yes. If you're if you are insecure and if you feel uh, listless, if you feel like there's not any real way for you to display my manhood, my masculinity, and you're given a set of tropes to grasp onto, whether that's James Bond, whether that's you know American Sniper, yeah, um, oh, yeah that's kind of pseudo commando role that usually is actually not borne by people in the military, but people who'd like to pretend that they are. Yeah, uh, yeah funny that. No. <laughs> yeah, the, the wraparound Oakleys with the, the army T-shirt. You're like, wait, were you in the army? You're like, no. And you're like, wait, wait a second. Hang what? on a second. What are you doing? Um, <laughs> you know, this is getting on a bit of a different tangent, but I think sure. you know, there, there are so many. There's absolutely a conversation we have there around performative displays of masculinity and how those come up in online gaming and gaming affinity spaces like like 4chan or acoon who was right yeah. with this 
Um, but the link that I see there is not between video games or depiction of violence video games. It's what are the norms and tropes and mores around masculinity that are depicted and how do those get socialized and picked up? Exactly. Um, that seems to be the recurring theme here, Galen. And again, very much in, in line with what we know about radicalization to violent extremism in, in general is this idea of socialization. So, you know, I guess your, your research perspective is more such that it's not so much the content as much as the, um, the way the social settings interact with that content. Definitely. And to go a step further in the social settings, if we look at, you know, what we call affinity spaces, things that are related to games, but they're not actually game forums, live streaming. The, the other thing that you'll know for the rest of your work is that the messenger matters, right? Mm, mm. So if we look at live streaming gamers, so you're talking about people who have audiences in the millions. If that person is using their platform to talk about very misogynistic tropes like Gamergate, you look at um, Qtapai, right, about this not directly instigating violence, but definitely perpetuating misogyny and misogynistic norms in his talks, right? So then you have a messenger who's tapping into a gamer community. Some of them likely already hold those views, but a lot of them are probably more swayable. And it's those swayable metal that are then reached by a credible messenger who's telling them, actually, misogyny is what we should be all about. Like, you know, uh, these who are these women to question us in, in the gaming world, right? So that type of toxic archetype is getting used by messenger now could you help to empower other creators and credible messengers to say instead actually this is a great conversation like why are we excluding women from this women are great this is insane you know um those voices should be amplified and that's where i think there's a lot of interesting room for positive interventions and resilience building in right games and game related spaces instead actually that's a perfect segue into some of, because the other thing I got a sense from reading, not only being familiar with your work, Galen, but also just reading some of the work that the the Extremism Gaming Research Network has put out, like particularly that state of play that I made the pun about before, um, is this idea of hope and an untapped well of opportunity to create like a pretty healthy, um, healthy, thriving online game communities, right? What, can you speak to some of those opportunities that you see, maybe even some of the examples where you've seen this sort of community, uh, the powers that it offers wielded in a really pro-social way? Sure. I mean, I'm glad to hear you touch on that because I think it's a really, a really interesting and on space to look at, right? Like games, when you pick up your PS5 or what I, on my computer, I... Uh, use that to relax. I use it to unwind and de-stress. You know, the storyline's great. I get a good story out of it too. If I'm playing a, a murder mystery add-on for a game recently, oh, cool. like, what are you playing at the moment? I'm playing, yeah, we're um, outer outer worlds. Right. Space oh, space. okay. I know yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think you want to get a murder mystery add-on. The game played out a little boring. Like, what do we do? Well, let's make a murder mystery out of it. Great. What is storytelling? Dystopian future, like good stuff. Across the board. Um, so, so when it comes to interventions, like we could do some cool stuff in those spaces. The interventions that I've seen so far 
we have seen pilots for using games in instructional activities. So using games to teach about myths and disinformation, about hoaxes online, how to fact check well. So we've seen some of that. We've seen some around violent extremism and like how do you avoid radicalization? How do you avoid people trying to target you online? Right. Most of those games fall into like the flash-based in-browser category. And then, you know, nonprofits, usually with some government funding, producing them and then putting those out. So my question to those is like, who is actually playing them? Um, now, when they play them, there's a lot of good because you have, again, that sense of belonging. It's a great educational facilitator and you are uh, keeping people really engaged. So his recent pilot, one of our partners, Moonshot, you know, pretty well, who sure do. did a pilot for this. And, you know, they went from some like 16 seconds that people would stay on this website to talk about radicalization. Then they went to people actually playing a game for 16 minutes. That's a huge increase. 30 seconds to 16 minutes, yeah. 32 fold increase oh, wow. in engagement time. That's pretty cool. That's promising. I think that's just scratching the surface, though. Because flash-based games, I mean, when was the last time you played a flash-based game? I couldn't even tell you what that what one is. Can you give me an example? Like, uh, What's a well-known one? RuneScape. Oh, see, that's a name I know very well, but I don't think I've played that. Um, is Portal one of those? No, nah, Portal. Are you just Portal... side stream, or is that more complex? Now we're getting really yeah. good. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> It's like uh, it's something you played like in I played like in, in elementary school or middle school where you like go to the web browser and you oh, would like Carmen San Diego. There you go, like Carmen San Diego. Got it. Um, yes. Wow, really showing my age. <laughs> yeah, like Oregon Trail, right? Like right. that that level of got it. Uh, sophistication. You can you put it in a web browser now. You don't have to download and install it. You go to www. Dot, I don't know you could do or off the top of my head. But like, you know, these are kind of an old school approach. They are games that gamified. And that's good. So I think they're promising. Right. But now imagine if we took that and brought it into 2022 and said, all right, let's actually work with a grade A blockbuster game on this. Let's work on a cool narrative there instead. Like the US military has partnered with games to work on training. Why don't we instead invest in the social side too? Like, like, okay, what about some positive mental health interventions with games right. or work on tapping narratives of, you know, social inclusion or hate speech? Like, let's do that. And then let's bring the messengers in. Let's bring in top gamers to talk about these things. Like the work that we did with creators for change with YouTube. Yes. Right? Yes. Yep. So let's, let's tap into that same street, take prominent creators and messengers in have them actually discuss these real issues in in language that is accessible, that's not right. jargon, that feels real, that's edgy. Like, look, you know, if we're if we're bullying people and make people feel shitty for, for who and what they are in in our games, like that's not right. Games should be a place where everyone can exchange and everyone can compete and play. Like the power of play, the power of rest should matter. And let's leverage all that incredible interaction that's happening in much more sophisticated games and use portions of that 
to also, you know, build a bit of a safer world. Um, so anyway, the, the games we've seen produced for this is some in Sri Lanka, some in Indonesia, a couple of the states in Europe. Right. They're promising, but I think they're okay. just scratching the surface for the potential there. Yeah, sure. I feel like I'm seeing some parallels here now, just because you mentioned Creators for Change and, you know, just for people listening, Creators for Change is a, a program um, for, you know, content creators on YouTube um, to to use their platforms. Like it's for those creators that want to use their platforms more pro-socially to talk about particular social issues, whether it's um, fighting hate speech or, you know, promoting any sort of social cohesion or inter intercultural dialogue, whatever we whatever pro-social issue is of significance to that person. It's about giving them the ability to be able to do that. It's interesting thinking about how that translates to gaming as well, because I'm hearing kind of two streams kind of similar to that program, right? Where you had creators that were creators because they were creating uh, conversation platforms with their viewers, right? And it's them, it's like blog style. It's them talking to their viewers. It's asking questions. It's a day in the life type of stuff. Again, making people feel a very intimate connection and a sort of getting to know someone on a very day-to-day -day level. And then you've got the other sort of stream of creators that make creative works as well, which always seem to be really hard in the counter-narrative space because I felt like, again, personal observation here, um, it's hard to make pro-social content without it becoming too benign. Like at least that's the 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 kind of the the feeling I got that if people were trying to advance a social issue, they didn't know how to do it without being very kumbaya, you know, or like, or very, very sort of Pollyanna-ish as we called it, just a very kind of benign, non-conflict kind of narrative. And I think conflict narratives in this situation make even more sense with gaming because it taps into that competitive, you know, gamification kind of maybe need or instinct that we might have as gamers. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to think of any examples of games that actually say something about the world in a way, but the even if the the um, even if it's a purely creative endeavor, some stories of games you're you're just like, holy crap! Like that is such an amazing um, story that says something about the world. I think for me, the most the best example I can think of just currently would probably be something like Horizon Zero Dawn. You know what it looks like for a, a world to regrow itself after some sort of devastating cataclysmic event and some of the ethical conundrums that the players have um, in trying to sort of figure out how the hell they got there. You know, those sorts of things I think are also really missed opportunities or just huge opportunities, not missed, untapped opportunities to potentially create more, you, leverage gaming as a as a messenger in and of itself for for these sorts of pro-social messages. Have you seen any examples like that, like where the games themselves are not necessarily angling to be kind of counter-narrative, but just happen to be? Yeah, that's a really good point around, you know, engaging with creatives who are, who are building beautiful, interesting things. But then, like, you put the so pro-social angle on it, and it's like you lose the edge. Yeah. I... This is me speaking in a personal capacity, not, not sure, a professional. Sure, sure. It's like, yep. if you want to win against fascism, it's a fight. Mm, <laughs> I exactly. mean, if you want to beat the far right, it's a fight. 
If you want to advocate for democracy, it's a fight. If you want to beat neo-Nazis, it's a fight. And I think it's a bit of a mistake to say that everything should just be peaceful, pro-inclusion narratives. If you're angry at someone who wants to commit terrorist acts and use these platforms to horrible ends, well, allow people to take a bit of an edge in that, right? Yes, yeah. I think there's a mistake in that, trying to only foster um, a, a very kind of mamby Pollyanna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Connections, right? Yeah. So, so well, let's, let's, I mean, and I, a, a phrase came up earlier, online ideological conflict spaces. Right. Sorry, but why do we know where, where ideologies are clashing online? Yes. I mean, let's back some previous action want to take a stand on. There's lots of people who are down with fighting fascism, right? Let's back some folks in there who are good creatives as well and mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. let's tackle some of these difficult questions and, and give you good responses to win over people who are swayable in these online mm -hmm. spaces. I mean, mm -hmm. that is a narrative fight. And we should be very strategic in how we think through those questions. I'm just backing very kumbaya type dialogues. I'm not sure is, is, is helpful. There's a role for dialogue. There's a role for that. But when you're in an online space, you got to be focused on winning a good narrative, winning a good argument, because you're, you're describing a different ideology. And if you can do that, yeah. well, let's do it. Like, let's talk about why uh, diverse, inclusive societies matter. Like, let's yeah. let's beat that argument. Let's let's look at where the alternatives led. And so I think to give me a question, mm. games that have done that well. Um, Mass Effect uh, online RPG has some really complex ethical quandaries that are posed. In it. Um, first person shooter Wolf, Wolfenstein, one of the recent ones. Right. Yes. The the anti Nazi uh, plotline in that. Not super complex, could have done a lot more, <laughs> but like, sure. you know, you, you had an inkling in there. Um, so, you know, just as art, I believe that art is inherently political. Um, and the decision to exclude art, to exclude politics from art, is a decision in and of itself. I'm more a fan of like Marina Abramovich's performance pieces and saying that, look, art is performative, art is a statement, it is inherently political with a, with a lowercase p. Um, doesn't need to endorse a party or a stance, but art is generally political. It says something about the world and it takes a position right or wrong. Um, art that tries to reflect the world is adopting a position and video games as a form of art are kind of similar in that sense, except maybe the advantage here is that you've got players and consumers being the active agents of that, that story within that confines, right? So there's maybe something to be said about video game design in and of itself that kind of encourages people to think of how these things apply in their situation in their world that they live in. There's just a paper that I I, I looked up um, called more than just XP in terms of just some of the other sort of potential or sort of the benefits that seem to be coming from understanding like how video games can be sort of wielded um, really well. Um, and it says that MMORPGs, so is that massive multiplayer online role-playing games? It is. Got it. I always, I always mess that one up. So uh, MMO, MMORPGs provide opportunities for learning social skills, such as how to meet people, how to manage a small group, how to coordinate and cooperate with people, 
and how to participate in sociable interactions with them. We show this social learning is tied to three important types of social interaction that are characteristics of MMORPGs. Players' self-organization, instrumental coordination, and downtime sociability, which kind of are three very specific but very fundamental kind of human needs and skills we have in order to uh, coexist and create relationships with people, right? So that just was another example that kind of stands out of like, oh, even the game type itself, even though we there's that tension between whether violent video games actually encourage violence or are they just you know, can they be separated from it? Perhaps the skills you actually practice by playing video games, is there something to be said of how we translate those like more practical things rather than just the abstract, um, you know, characterizations in video games and whether we can actually apply those to our lives too. There seems to be a well of possibility, I guess, in terms of what we're, what we're yet to understand. Yeah, I think there really is. And I think, you know, I'm, all, I'm wary of just putting this up to to governmental intervention too, right? Like I think there is a, a call to action here for creatives and for game creators to say, all right, dare to be a little different. Dare to take a little bit of that edge and say, can we actually talk about interesting skills and conversations that can happen in a game? Uh, Lego, I think is an interesting example of a company that it's not video game focused, although they have created video games but puts play and learning at the core of their company values. So here's a really interesting case where, you know, the act of play can be transformative and wonderful. So that, that there's no reason that the that video games can also take up a bit of that ethos. And I think there's an enormous amount of potential there to say, how do we engage with the challenges of our time of eroding social trust of corrosive impacts of democracy, of mis and disinformation and, and fake, um, you know, I hate the phrase fake news, but um, of disinformation that is targeted and manipulated. Like, those are all really interesting questions that could be brought into to games as well. And in ways that can um, make them slightly less toxic to engage with. Mm and try and come up with new answers to them and give players the ability to wrestle with some of these complex questions and figure out, okay, how do I, how do I come to terms with that? Um, so just as, as Lego recently decided to, to de-gender their Legos, right? Mm, yeah. I've, and I've, to I've, say I've... like, okay, so this is offline toy. We can play with social constructs and games too. And there's some amazing things that can happen there. And it is a risk. For sure, it's a business risk for companies to take. But I think given the many pressing challenges we face right now in, in democratic societies and across the world, uh, there's a lot we can do. And I think on the extremism front, there's a lot of interesting questions that can be tackled through games and, and more broad social questions too. I mean, to your point about what happens after environmental devastation, how that can be picked in the game. There's so many interesting prospects there. And tapping into the online community side of that, like we can also spur more interesting conversations in those online spaces too. And that's not a role just for, for governments or for nonprofits. There's a role for, for creators, individuals to take there and say, how do I carry forward these conversations? And, you know, when I see a really interesting game that engage with that, I'll play it. You know? 
There's lots of indie game makers out there who do engage with this. I would love to see more of that on the, on the blockbuster side. For sure. I guess that was going to be my next question, right? As we sort of start to look towards the future now. And, you know, I'm curious to see what things look like from, you know, the, the, uh, like the EGRN's perspective, like the gate, your, the research network's perspective, like what are the sort of the, the next frontiers of research and work to happen in this area about not only trying to understand the relationship between extremism and gaming, but also the flip side of how do we harness the power of video games for good? What, what does that sort of that look like for you guys at the moment? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us really nascent, to be honest. What I'd love to see us do on the research side, like I was saying, is, is understand games as, as communication platforms and communication channels as well. To understand the social spaces there. And then when it comes to designs and positive interventions, I, I really think that you know, we need to do some more work on game design. Uh, we need to do more work on the creation of interesting and compelling uh, games themselves, but yeah. also working in the social spaces around them to have mm, these mm. conversations with gamers, with creatives in this space, with people who occupy positions of prominence. Say, like, look, you're a credible messenger with the folks who listen to you. Um, let's talk about this this pressing issue, you know, and why it might be close to your heart. And, and not to be disingenuous in that, but really to draw out and co-set some of these conversations, whether that's around extremism or hate speech or misinformation, or whether that's around gender, misogyny, sexism. Like, let's entice out some of these difficult dialogues. Um, and to also look at the conversations around resilience online. Mental health. Yeah, sure. We use games to teach because we absolutely can. So I'd love to see us continue to expand the work there and, uh, you know, make a, a shameless plug for the network and that we're, Please. we're going to finish uh, some I research. I kind of hoping you would. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're a group of, of researchers and organizations that uh, enjoy the space, but we're, we're pro bono network so far. Right? We're trying to find um, more funding. We're trying to find interested parties, whether that's from platforms themselves or from creatives or from more traditional donors in, in the governmental foundation spaces. So we're interested. Look, we see that there's a problem here and we also see an opportunity here. Let's work on it together. So, you know, the listeners and the folks who are tuning in today can find out more about us at extremismandgaming.org. Um, you can email me at info at extremismandgaming.org. Org. Awesome. And, uh, um, and what, which, which organizations are involved in this kind of coalition or alliance, you know, of, of researchers? Like, who are some of the people involved? It's an international network of you, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I'm really fortunate that you know, the origins were behind this was a year ago, we realized it's a bit of an issue, put out feelers to some of our colleagues, had an amazing response. You know, a lot of times we have different donors, different clients, we always work together. So for this one, it's been incredibly collaborative the whole time. So working with the Royal United Services Institute out of the UK, our partners over at MSC Saatchi World Services, Moonshot CVE, yep. uh, GIFCT, the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, Institute for Strategic Dialogue, ISD, uh, Modusa, they do uh, de-radicalization research in Germany, um, Signor, the Science Period, they're out of Austria, and the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right in the UK, representation as well. And I wish, and then you went we've got UNDP. Um, yeah. We have several of the UN agencies that are also really interested in joining as well. So it's a good group, honestly. 
that's some really um i mean i guess you know just to kind of share with people that are not necessarily in the space like we are that's a really amazing caliber of um people and and organizations that are backing something like this so seems like the possibilities and the frontiers you could sort of push through that are really exciting so yeah, like I'm all for plugging those sorts of future thinking kind of research initiatives because there's so much yet to explore. That's kind of what I'm left feeling in this conversation with you, Galen, that, you know, video games, are, like they represent an evolution of technology and storytelling and and sort of play. Um, that's very natural, but we're learning as rapidly as it's evolving, I suppose, right? And like, I mean, how long has streaming, like game streaming, been a thing? Like, really, over what, 10, 10 years more, twenty years? Even less. I mean, Even less, basic, right? So, you know, yeah. So we're talking about something really new, and if we take, if the takeaway here is that we really need to focus as much attention, if not more, on the socializing spaces that facilitate these sorts of gameplay, um, that there's a lot that we have yet to learn, but there's almost, but there's lots of reasons to be hopeful that this can actually be harnessed in a really powerful way. I think so. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful recap. Costa. Um, yeah. Well, we're really excited to keep looking at it. I'm happy to hear that. And again, I'm so grateful for your time. I always love chatting to you. Um, Galen, if anyone wants to learn more about you specifically or the work that you're up to, where can they find you? Folks can always find more information, like I said, the network, extremismgaming.org, or if you're interested in just uh, reaching out to me, you can go to uh, englandconsulting.org or galenengland.org. Awesome. That's great. Well, Galen, I'm going to go run and play my PS5. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got some games waiting for me, but um, it's been such a pleasure. I always love chatting to you, as I said before. Um, have the best day and we'll connect again really soon. Perfect. Costa, thanks again. Always wonderful speaking and uh, enjoy the PS5. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye. You have been listening to Undesign, a series of conversations about the big issues that matter to all of us. Undesign is made possible by the wonderful team at Draw History. And if you want to learn more about each guest or each topic, we have curated a suite of resources and reflections for you on our Undesign page at www.drawhistory.com. Thank you to the talented Jimmy Linville for editing and mixing our audio. Special thank you to our guest for joining us and showing us how important we all are in redesigning our world's futures. And last but not least, a huge thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this journey of discovery and hope. The future needs you. Make sure you stay on the journey with us by subscribing to Undesign on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available.